You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. Episode 174, The Paradox. Welcome to The Paradox with your attending, Dr. Eric Larson. He is a practicing anesthesiologist and clinical assistant professor at Michigan State University College of Human Medicine. Listen in as he takes you behind the scenes of what practicing medicine in today's ever-changing world is like with another doctor. The Paradox is a fun and accidentally informative show for physicians, patients, or anyone who has ever found themselves in a waiting room. Welcome to The Paradox. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Larson. Thank you for joining me as we explore the U.S. medical system in a fun and informative format through expert analysis. And today you're going to have a great time. We're not going to talk COVID. We're talking U.S. medical history. Oftentimes we get the story, especially those of us in medicine, you know, how do we end up with a third-party system? How do we end up with an insurance-based system of delivering healthcare? Uh, it seems kind of random. And the explanation always is given is that, well, there was sort of an insurance market, an nascent sort of insurance market that existed back in the 30s and 40s. And what happened is there were wage controls put in place by Truman in the end of the World War II and the, the 40s. And so the only way you could attract workers was to provide other, basically, pay. When Since you can't provide actual income, people provided benefits, namely health insurance. And then these sort of became ingrained. It's through the tax system and through various other means. And so we ended up with this third-party system that, of course, expanded to what it is today. Well, this version is, although not entirely false, mostly false, and we're going to learn how, why today. And so I think this will give you a great depth in sort of why we are, where we are, and then by extension, once you see sort of how we got to the point where we have that story begin, oftentimes in the 1940s and 50s with the explosion of health insurance as a benefit with your employment, you will see how we got to that point. And it began way back in the roaring 20s or even in the 19-teens when we started trying to figure out where modern medicine would really fit into household budgets and, you know, exactly how you get to where we are today. Not only are you going to have fun with this conversation, you're going to learn a lot, and it's going to make you way more informed when you're talking to people in the OR or at home. If you want to learn more about Dr. Chapin or you want access to her book that she is talking about, you can go to theparadox.com slash 174, and there you can get access to the show notes and a link to purchase her book. But without further ado, Dr. Chrissy Chapin and the real history of modern medicine. Enjoy. Well, I'm delighted to introduce my new friend, Dr. Christy Chapin. She's an associate professor of 20th century U.S. political, business, and economic history, as well as capitalism studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County. They're the ones who uh, upset Virginia, right? In the, it's the my 16th alma mater. Season. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, that's extra painful there for you. Yeah. Uh, published by Cambridge Press, University Press, Chapin's book, Ensuring America's Health, the public creation of the corporate healthcare system, won the Business History Conference's 2016 Ralph Gomori Prize, which recognizes the best historical work on the effects of business enterprises on the economic conditions of the countries in which they operate. That is the book we're going to talk about. But she's also published work on historical topics such as black-owned business, home mortgage markets, the life insurance industry, banking, and the history of medicine as a history of capitalism. Currently working on the manuscript titled the Financialized States of America, How Banking and Finance Shaped Capitalism, Governance, and Life in the United States. 
She's been a visiting professor at Johns Hopkins University through a Kauffman Foundation grant for the study of the history of capitalism, and she has a number of fellowships, for example, from the Library of Congress and the American Council of Learned Societies. Well, Dr. Chapin, thank you so much for joining us and for introducing you to my audience with your history of medicine. <laughs> thank you for having me. So we've talked on this show a number of times briefly about the history of medicine, and it's, I will also, it's sort of like a cartoon cartoonized version of sort of how we got where we are. We talk a number of times about the problem of third-party payer systems and how it's, you know, a, there's a disconnect between the consumer and the person providing the services that, you know, there's this person in between and it's sort of caused all the distortions in the market that we expect. There are people getting around this like direct primary care who are doing the direct consumer and there's more direct contracting. Uh, so the story is always like, well, in the 50s or right after World War II, there were wage controls, and so a way for people to get around this, uh, employers had to offer some sort of way of attracting workers, and so they offered benefits with, in the name of health insurance, and then that sort of morphed into other things, you know, Medicare evolved from that, and et cetera. Uh, this is sort of like, I listened to a, um American Revolution podcast, and you can start with the Boston Tea Party, but if you don't have any of the context before, so like why people are, you know, angry, Besides, hey, there's a lot of high taxes. I mean, that's a that's a sort of cartoonized version of American history, right? You need to know who came, how was colonized from Europe, what the pe- people who came, why they came, what how they had structured themselves, you know, within the previous 150 years or so before the revolution, to have some idea of sort of why it happened. And so that's why I'm so excited to have you on because I I heard your interview uh, and I said, ah, this is I finally know why things make more sense. It never quite made sense to me. Uh, in that sort of version. So I don't know where to start. I guess m- maybe at the beginning is probably a better place. And then we'll sort of get to the, the part where people sort of have a misunderstanding that that's where history began. Right. And also probably I should probably explain a little bit about our methods as historians, just so your your audience understands how I figured this story out. Um, I, the one thing I love about being a historian um, and not not to sh- throw any shade on our friends, the social scientists, but our methods are that we have to look at primary sources and archival sources. So for this book, at first, when I was writing this, this is my dissertation, getting my doctorate at the University of Virginia, it wasn't clear that I was going to even be able to do the project because the American Medical Association isn't exactly welcoming to researchers. They don't want people <laughs> looking in their archives and who can blame them? They need to protect themselves. And guess what? Insurance companies tend to be the same way. Um, So I really had to do a lot of digging in order to find the sources, but I ended up finding so many, you know, just at various like private collections of papers that people had left behind. I ended up being able to find pretty much everything I would have wanted from the AMA with the personal papers of one of their very important post-war leaders. Then I was able to find um, lots of trade association papers from the commercial insurance companies. And then also Blue Cross Blue Shield, I was able to find tons and tons of stuff of theirs. So I just want your audience to understand how it is I figured this out. I've looked at um, board meeting minutes from insurance companies, um, board of trustees meeting minutes from the AMA, correspondence between amongst physicians and between physicians and insurers and back and forth. Of course, then just tons of government documents, um, um, committee hearings and such, just to give them an idea that I've looked at, you know, probably more than, you know, tens of 
at least 20,000 sheets of, you know, paper that are just primary sources, not to mention the um, existing secondary source literature. Um, so that is how I started um, trying to figure out exactly what was going on with healthcare because for me, the question I wanted to figure out is why do insurance companies play the role they do in the healthcare system? Because I right. did understand that it was a little bit odd because they don't just finance services. They're kind of at the center of it, managing and coordinating the whole thing and deciding how much physicians make and even how physicians practice medicine. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So it's very interesting that you look at the primary sources, of course. I guess, you know, the first question to have, is, which is not really related to this, is I, I'm actually surprised there's any correspondence. Uh, I understand that the AMA might have, you know, archives, but I guess I just wouldn't think insurance companies that may not even be around, you know, back then today. Where do you, how do you find these sources? I, I'm well, stunned that there's like written records of meetings and stuff or for, you know, personal correspondence for people from 19, you know, 18 or something. Yeah, this is this is the stuff we love. I mean, this really is a historian's happy place is being in an archive like this. But really, there are um, sometimes these documents do get destroyed. But um, oftentimes um, when people are leaving behind their personal papers, if just because if they're a leader in a trade association or professional association like the AMA, almost everything they have is important for historians. Um, so sometimes this stuff is hard to find. For example, Blue Cross Blue Shield lost their archive and I tracked down the son of the last archivist they had before they downsized, had budget cuts in the early 90s. They have their archive stored somewhere. They just institutional knowledge being what it is. They for, they forgot where it is. They don't know where they stored it. And so I tracked down the son of the archivist and then went and they had written a book about Blue Cross Blue Shield and went and got all their papers. I mean, boxes and boxes and boxes of them. Wow. Um, because I even want to see things like the employee newsletter inside the Blue Cross plan. Like I want to see it all. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, that's how because you, you're trying to figure out the culture too at the time, right? And and exactly. knowing you know what what Pam is doing and what Fred are do, up to. I mean, that sort of gives you a paints a picture of what life was like within the insurance company and you know what they're sort of focused on as a company. Yeah. You know, they're talking to their clients, right? I mean, that gives you a, a more a rich feel for what's going on. Uh, and I think, you know, it's easy as physicians to sort of, we have a very, I'll say modern, because that's just what we say when we're in the time, <laughs> modern approach to medicine. But of course, you know, medicine was very different in 1900, for instance, than it is in 2000. I mean, it's radically different in 100 years. Much more science-based, medical education is different. Uh, you can do an entire, you could do many shows just on how medical education changed and with the um, introduction of the various credentialing bodies that that govern you know, medical institutions uh, for education. Uh, so I guess maybe the, probably the best place to, as far as a fork in the road is probably the, the early this turn of the century, right? Like 1910s. And that's sort of where, why don't you just paint the picture for what medicine kind of looked like, I suppose, and the various forces that we're struggling to sort of how we're going to, I guess, deliver care and pay for it. Because because payment is what drives a lot of what we do and how, how we pay, like you said, you know, the insurance companies definitely dictates or how we practice because we want to maximize our revenue in addition to take care of patients. And so you have to kind of do both those in tandem. Well, 1910 is a, a great place to start because there's a famous um, 
quote in the history of medicine that you see printed over and over again, and I'm not even going to get it correct, but it's something like it was around the year 1912 when the you know average random patient stood to actually benefit from an encounter with the average <laughs> random doctor. <laughs> they weren't killing their patients as much anymore. Um, so, of course, students love to hear how, you know, patients killed George. I mean, physicians killed George Washington and such, because this is right. all before that was all before um, germ, the discovery of germ theory. So 1910 is a great place to start, because at the end of the 19th century, we get the discovery of germ theory, 1870s with Coke and Pasteur's experiments. And it's not something that's just these discoveries aren't kept to the academy. The actual public is very excited about this, too. It's hitting the newspapers. Everybody's very thrilled because they understand what this means for them. I mean, with a diphtheria antitoxin that's a horrible one that comes to town and kills all the little kids you know right. so so people are very excited about medicine they are now want to access it more and more this modern medicine but of course the the costs and prices are going up a lot because now it is more effective and there's all this excitement around it and medicine's very difficult to budget for because if you need something like a surgery or hospitalization it's so much right um and you don't know when you're going to need it or if you're going to need it. So people are looking for ways to figure out how to pay for health care, right? Things like health insurance that allow you to budget because you know what your monthly bill is going to be. Um, so if you look at the first, like, say, several three or four decades of the 20th century, what I would say is the healthcare market, very vibrant, tons of different ways of models. That's what I say. You would look at it and you would say, wow, there are so many models for financing and um, delivering health care. And it just depended on what group you were looking at. Businesses were contracting with physicians and hospitals. Some were hiring physicians on salary just to have them on staff. They were kind mm -hmm. of... Like you can imagine in a factory, if there were a lot of, for example, uh, media about other factories, um, progressive era, um, say muckraking articles about how dirty a factory was. One um, strategy was for businesses to hire physicians and bring them in as in, in practice industrial medicine was big during this period. You had um, unions uh, contracting with physicians and hospitals, also creating their own um, union welfare funds where they would hire physicians on salary for members. You have mutual aid societies and fraternal orders, which represented all the different immigrant categories you can imagine from Croatians and Swedes to, you know, the Irish and Russian Jews, whatever it may be. Everybody had their mutual aid society. These were very important. They almost always provided life insurance to their members. Um, and um, during the beginning of the 20th century, they often were beginning to provide health insurance for their members, health insurance and the idea that you pay your dues and you get to access the physician with whom we contract. It might also be a, the physician often would be maybe even a member of this particular mutual aid society right. or fraternal order. Your audience should understand there were thousands of these mutual aid societies around the country. And pretty much if you're an immigrant, you're definitely going to um, belong to one because this is how um, in the absence of the modern welfare state that people took care of one another and you had mutual benefits that way. Um, there were consumer cooperatives, farmers associations, all different ways of, of, of financing and arranging Healthcare, um, but I do want to focus in on one since it's the one I believe would have become dominant, and it's the one that I believe physicians will be most interested in hearing about, and that is the prepaid physician groups or prepaid doctor groups. Mm -hmm. um, and this is interesting because this is what the doctors wanted to do. Um, 
they formed groups, which of course you all are very, you know, accustomed to practicing in groups, but instead of single specialty groups, they were multi-specialty groups. And that's the exciting thing about them because medicine was practiced differently. Um, the other thing that was so radically different about these groups is you paid your monthly insurance fee to the group, not to a third party. Okay. So the physicians acted as the insurer. Sure. Okay. So, um, and you also see too how this changes medicine. If it's not fragmented care, single specialty, um, but a one-stop shopping where you really have responsibility for that for that patient. Um, just, uh, just a, I'm sure your your audience is familiar familiar with this problem. But the problem with fragmented care is that if a person has more than one diagnosis, as often happens with the elderly, they can be very difficult, of course, to manage their care. Theoretically, the general practitioner is doing this, but we all know that the poor general practitioner does not have time to jump on the phone with, you know, little Miss Smith, you know, five different specialists and figure out, you know, how to be treating her. Um, and then, of course, some of the sadder cases are people who know something's wrong with them, but they can't figure it out. And they go from doctor. They just get sent from specialist to specialist. And once the specialist has run through all the things that the insurance company will reimburse them for, then they get sent <laughs> to the next specialist, the next specialist. And nobody, nobody's responsible for finding out what's wrong with this poor person. And even if I mean, like the sad thing, too, is like even if the person dies or is whatever's figured out about the person, that information doesn't get fed back into the system. So right, there's right, no learning right. being done. Um, so that's you know the problem with fragmented care. But with these multi-specialty groups, uh, you know, the, the understanding is the buck stop here stops here. So at the end of the day, um, they would discuss their most complicated cases. And I've always said that this would be a much more interesting way to practice medicine because you're really practicing across specialty and learning across specialty um, in a way, you know, not quite as much. And I know you do it today, but not quite to the same degree. No, right. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. So uh, would an example of this be the Mayo Brothers in, in Rochester, Minnesota? So, that be a, it, sort it of a multi-specialty group? You know, they weren't even physicians, though, which was interesting. Except, except, except they were a physician group, right? And they're, you know, of course, pushing surgery, you know, at this point and really right. helping create the modern field of surgery and, and people you know, being even more comfortable with having it done. But they're not a prepaid physician group. So Mayo, they, they develop a um, reputation from pretty early on it, where it is like it is today. People come from around the world to go there. Right, right. But with these prepaid physician groups, it's just these are this. These are my doctors in my town. These are this is where I go. Um, the Mayo brothers, they're kind of a special thing, too, because the fact that the, the AMA ends up kind of even letting them survive, because that's the next piece we have to talk about. This is how the AMA is pretty much responsible for crushing all these different experiments. Right. So I guess that's, yeah, that's it. I guess you'd say, well, in a perfect world, which doesn't never exists, I mean, with no other outside political forces, right? The best methods sort of percolate up, they, they evolve and they become more dominant. But obviously that it's never the way anything ever happens. There's always other things that are going, that are going on that affect the way things happen. So what happens next? Because, I mean, obviously we know where we end up. So how, how do we get there from, <laughs> from, a system where you have all kinds of different w ways of and I of delivering care and I it's funny because I think of my grandparents were in Rockford Illinois and there's a Swedish American hospital there which I imagine was because there were lots of Swedes that that probably was founded because there were a bunch of Swedes founded a hospital back in the 1920s or 30s I mean it might have been because of their mutual aid society 
Yeah, right. I'm that exactly yeah. is, right. Mm-hmm. And I think there's places like in Iowa, there's like a Czech uh, place too. I, now it all sort of makes sense how these things begin. Of course, we just see them as large parts of hospitals within health systems. But of course, back whenever they were founded, they were either you know a voluntary, like he said, mutual aid society, like the the church maybe, or uh, these nationalities, various nationalities from immigrants. Yeah, some of the uh, large black fraternal orders built their own hospitals and operate mm-hmm. their own hospitals. So um, yeah, I need to get us from what happened. But actually, I'm realizing one more piece of. Um, Um, information I want to clarify about the prepaid physician groups is in addition to offering this integrated care and being such a fantastic way um, to practice medicine is um, they were widely recognized for holding down costs. And they really could because they could offer so many benefits in the 1930s that insurance companies and Blue Cross absolutely couldn't. Like, for example, they could cover obstetrics and um, Mm pregnancies. And it's because of uh, the financing. This is such a key part of healthcare. I'm sure you've discussed it on your podcast before. I just think it's, you know, simply if you look at different healthcare systems, usually there's a problem of either rationing or overutilization, right? It's usually one or the other. Um, Your audience probably knows that the United States is known as for amongst the insured for overutilization because of the idea of, you know, running up a bill and sending it to a third party. Um, but then a lot of systems, especially ones that are centrally controlled or um, socialized through the government, um, you, the, the main complaint is rationing of care sure. and having yeah. to wait for a long time for a surgery or important procedure. And so the amazing thing about these prepaid physician groups is they manage to thread that needle. I mean, as impossible as it is, I, you know, I maintain it's the physicians that need to be incentivized correctly since they're the ones with all this expertise, right? You know, mm-hmm. um, to walk that like who else knows walking the line between rationing care and overutilization? It has to be the ones who've trained for 10, 15 years, right? Not a government like you see and not a government official, not an insurance company official. Sure. Well, I mean, I think, you know, it, it's always I just say it's like any business, right? I mean, if you are providing if you're a plumber and you're charging too much, you're not doing enough service, you're not going to stay in business, right? So you have to find, you. I guess you'd say, well, it's threading the needle, but that's just kind of running a business. Right? You provide what people want at a price that works and everyone's com- comfortable with, right? That's kind of what business is. Well, and, and we all responded and said, I always like to point this out. I'm like, the doctors are responding to incentives like the professors and the journalists do too. Because you know how we like to come along yeah, right. with like bad doctors. I'm like, we do the same stuff, right? So that's why you have to understand the system and how people are incentivized because it's like, yes, you can point to some fraudulent doctors, but that's not it. They're just reacting to the incentives. And I know I, if I were a doctor, I would rationalize that I'm providing gold standard care and I'm just making sure, right? Yeah. And this is the way everybody does it. Sure. So um, what is happening is because the way their physicians are paid under the prepaid physician group, it actually keeps all the incentives the way they should be. So under the prepaid physician group, doctors earned a salary. Of course, it would be based on like your specialty and your seniority, but they also got a cut of the profits, whether it was like biannual or quarterly. So I think it's really important to tie doctors to the bottom line, that they care about how the business is going. So they don't want to ration care because the last thing they want is their patients running around saying, don't bother with that doctor group. I mean, I pay them this monthly fee and you know, they're not, I'm not getting good care or I'm, I don't feel taken care of. Um, the other problem with rationing care when you own the patient's health, the way these prepaid physician doctors did is you could actually be hurting your, your financial 
um, health if you're not keeping them healthy with preventive medicine and everything else, right? Mm -hmm. So you don't want to ration care in that sense, but you also have absolutely no incentive to overutilize care and to overprovide procedures and services because that's also going to hit you in your back pocket. So you see how it, it really is incentivizing the physician to do that exact right thing for the patient. Um, amazing. (laughs) Imagine that. (laughs) Imagine that world. So, um, I do want to just say that these prepaid physician groups, because of that, they were massively popular. They're very popular amongst um, progressive reformers about amongst consumers. There were hundreds and hundreds of them. And just even in the 1930s during the great depression, and they had no problem signing up tons of families and customers because they were so popular and yeah, they probably- so that, were they mostly in cities? I mean, if you're someone in the in, on the farm, do you just have to go into town to access? I imagine you have to, to access these things, right? A lot of them were in cities, but guess the farmers did a lot of um, consumer cooperatives. Or oh, okay, so to be same the model. Thing. Some of them did prepaid physician groups, but um, the consumer cooperatives, because a lot of those were actually started through some New Deal experiments, copying experiments that were already in the private market, where they would just have like the farmers association meet with the medical society and like work out a fee schedule and you know figure okay. out little programs like because of the new deal and everything going on um but yes a lot of these obviously as you can imagine would start in cities especially if they're multi-specialty you have like you know surgeons and an ophthalmologist and an obstetrician and a few, you know a bunch of gps and such right so there's not a lot of love for the american medical association on the show uh, the ama has <laughs> Uh, not been uh, partly because of their incentive structure. You know, now the, their incentive is to maintain their CPT coding. Uh, so they have, they're they're not uh, as re- responsive to membership complaints or or concerns. I should say not complaints, concerns, because their revenue is actually mostly non dues revenue. I think like eighty five percent. And so what what members want, ah, they don't care. That's why they don't even care if they have members. In yeah. some ways, you know, you are you are you respond to your incentives as an organization, and your number one incentive is to survive. And if that means not having membership being an important part of your financial sort of underpinning, well, that's fine. Mm-hmm. We're just not going to, you know, we're going to make sure we just, our organization continues on. And this is every organization, whether it's a government institution or it's a business, right? Or Absolutely. family or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. And the AMA is not nearly as powerful as it used to be. Okay. Um, of course, they're always going to be called it's a kind of symbolic. What does the AMA think? Because they're still in everybody's mind standing for physicians, even though we know that the specialty societies are far more powerful than they used to be and, and more important than they used to be. But yeah, in the 50s, who you I mean, 30s, 40s and 50s, you did not want to cross the AMA. And so that is what I will explain to your audience is they're probably wondering, hey, you're telling us that there were all these great experiments in the healthcare market. There were hundreds and hundreds of just this one model, the prepaid physician group, not to mention all the other models I was talking about from union welfare funds to, to business um, solutions for their employees. Um, but what happened was that the AMA was against all of this stuff. They were against physician groups. They finally are going to let go on physician groups if they're single specialty, of course, but definitely no multi-specialty groups. Um, And they were against health insurance. And a lot of people are surprised to find this out um, because they know that the AMA opposed socialized medicine and government intervention in healthcare. But they're surprised to find out that I always want to tell them the AMA hated the idea of Doctors being part of a free market or competitive market was anathema to them. They absolutely did not want to have anything to do with that idea. It was as horrible to them as socialized medicine. 
So I just want to. Why is that? I, I guess I don't understand. Yeah. Why do they have such opposition to these market solutions? I mean, because it sounds like they don't want. Is it just an idealized thing? Every physician should charge the same because we all have the same knowledge and we want to make sure that there's no. That, that business is ugly, it's dirty, and so we don't yeah. want competition. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. sort of like uh, you're not – it was very – I don't know. Even like in the 80s, I felt like you know you didn't really advertise as a physician mm-hmm. because you know it's dirty to be part of business. We're just mm-hmm. – we're above that. Is, that. is that the thinking behind it? That's absolutely part of the thinking behind it. We are gentlemen of science. Like how dare you even imply that we might <laughs> – because think about it. There – the market has looked at differently than it is today. Today, we don't have as much association as with commercial as low class. But to them, you're asking them to give up their, you know, gentlemanly stature as experts and scientists to go into, yeah, a dirty, crass market where you would just have common peddlers peddling any kind of wares. I mean, the common medicine man might come to town and you're asking them to do that. That's what they're thinking, okay? That um, professionals don't do that. And we are professionals. This is a class thing. So that's part of it. The other part of it is what the market is doing in the United States at this time is creating the rise of the American corporation. Again, something that even though there's pushback and it can be controversial today, we still probably don't understand the fear that people had during this period, especially professionals who are are worried about the the American corporation um, subsuming them. So think about the engineers, for example, how they get pulled into the American corporation and and physicians are saying, oh, no, you we're not going to have an American corporation develop around us where we're answering to non physicians, non experts. Right. Gotcha. Um, so they're thinking that um, and, and prepaid physician groups and all the other experiments. The problem with that is if you have a multi-specialty group that looks like, oh, a nascent corporation with departments getting ready to develop. If there's health insurance, there's capital pooling, right? All these things look like, you know, they're going to develop into medical corporations. And they, they specifically are saying that. Ah, OK. Well, that makes a lot more sense then because the, to avoid the corporatization and having overlords. <laughs> Telling you, dictating how you practice medicine. Well, good right. thing they stopped that in its bud. Yeah, right. That good thing it didn't happen. <laughs> right, right. And can't you hear them saying that supermarket medicine, like right. that whole idea of being in the marketplace? Like, what do you think we're just like grocers, common grocers? Like, we are men of science, and of course, physicians are all excited too because for the first time now, <laughs> they actually have legitimacy in society. You know, people are really starting to look up to them. I mean, their their star is on the rise. Um, you would be surprised how they were not very respected in the 19th century. Before the discovery of germ theory, um, you know, the jokes are, oh, you know, too amoral for the pulpit and you're not smart enough to study for the bar. So, yeah, go into medicine. <laughs> you know, <those> are the- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So then so the AMA now at this point, they're in kind of a weird position because they're they're opposed to corporatization of medicine. But they're also opposed to socialization medicine, which I'm sure they're New Deal, right? There's obviously calls and there's I know there's mentioned that FDR was interested in creating a health insurance market for that the government pays for healthcare. Uh, in addition to the Social Security. I think it was part of actually going to be part of the Social Security benefit, wasn't it? I think it was to try mm-hmm. and um, tag this together. So they want to oppose that as well. So, I mean, I guess they want to just keep the status quo, which is not unusual. Most organizations don't want anything to change. Unfortunately, the world's always changing. And so you got to figure out some way to, to navigate that. Right. 
So, so, amidst, so I guess, how did they pivot? What happened? Yeah. So amidst industrialization, amidst, you know, after the discovery of germ theory, modern medicine, everything's changed with the AMA is like, no, we are keeping this 19th century <laughs> economic model for healthcare. <laughs> so as you said, in the 1930s, there is a lot of political pressure on the AMA. There had been suggestions for government funding of healthcare before, but always at the state level, right? Now it's at the federal level, because like you said, the Great Depression, New Deal era, of course, they're looking at healthcare because um, the AMA is doing everything they can to destroy the private market, which is basically inviting the government in, right? They're creating a problem that the government has to solve. Um, FDR understands that he does not want to go up against the AMA and the medical societies with the 19, uh, 1935 Social Security bill, even though, of course, um, the people in his administration want to put in funding for health care, but he, he's worried it'll sink the whole thing. But this is the period where now the federal government um, the pressure is on because then um, FDR creates a technical committee, calls a national conference. For the first time, you have legislation in the Senate being offered by Senator Wagner for um, federal funding for health care. So the pressure is on, basically. And so this is the reason that the AMA has to compromise. This is this is the period at the end of the 1930s where they realize, OK, we can't fight the two front war against the marketplace and against the government. We've got to, you know, re-strategize this. And so what they decide to do is they decide to just make up a market model. Um, which is the model that healthcare is run on today. I know this sounds uh -huh. insane, but this is what happened. And, you know, it's not an efficient economic model if they had to make it up and the market didn't produce it itself. Right. Yeah. And I'll explain that in a second. So they make up this model. Then they call this, you know, they wouldn't have called it the private market solution because the rhetoric then would have been voluntary, right? You know, first they're fighting the Germans and the fascists, you know, in the teens and 20s, right? If anybody wants um, to intervene with government medicine, but then after that, it's against the, the communists. So they're trying to, so they create, even though they make up this model and force it on everybody, they're going to relabel it as, hey, this is the free market, which they're, uh, you can see, especially after we get out of World War II, is going to be important for the way you set up that political contest, free market versus communism type thing, yeah, Americanism right. versus Sovietism, even though that's not what's happening. So they make up this model. They they won't allow physicians to practice in, in any of the other models because they'll take away their license. They own the licensing boards. Physicians know they will immediately lose their hospital admitting privileges. This was a time where you all had more power over the hospitals. And now I know that situation is reversed. Mm -hmm. um, and certainly, too, you would lose any referrals if you were a specialist. If you don't follow along with what the AMA says, which means no health insurance, no practicing in doctor groups, no contracting with mutual aid societies, consumer cooperatives, farmers, prepaid groups, whatever it may be. Um, so what the AMA does at the end of the 1930s, it says, OK, we're still going to be against all those models and we're still going to take your license and destroy your career and come after you if you have anything to do with them. But now we're going to allow health insurance, but you still can't practice in groups or anything. You still need to be practicing individually. And the health insurance we're going to allow is only health insurance through insurance companies, not the unions, not the prepaid physician groups. None of that. And not the government, right? That's not the, the government. Only insurance companies. <laughs> they make this bet with insurance companies because they're thinking insurance companies are located in one place, physicians all around the country. It'll be very hard for the insurer to supervise us. Whereas all the other 
models for financing and arranging care. It's it's all local. It's all happening right in the same place. So they decide to do that. The rule is the insurance companies have to um, pay physicians on fee for service, no capitation or salary. And um, uh, the other rule is that um, the insurance company absolutely has to give the physician complete autonomy, you know, no asking questions, no supervision. And this is the model that the AMA creates, right? Um, and the insurance companies take a look at it and they realize you're asking us to pay for services for which we can't even forecast. Like we can't forecast the supply <laughs> of those services because we're, you know, we're not even allowed to ask anything. We're not allowed to supervise you. We don't know. And, but that was, you know, that was the bargain, right? Um, the insurance companies don't want to get involved in this. They didn't even want to get involved with some of the other models that would have been more efficient. I found, found a lot of this in their archives just because they're worried about moral hazard and, and losing money with healthcare. Um, but the reason they go ahead and get involved with the AMA, and this is what I call the insurance company model, this model that the AMA creates at the end of the 1930s, that the market doesn't produce because it's insane. It's crazy. <laughs> and everybody recognizes that it's crazy. Um, but uh, it's the insurance company model. And this is what the AMA is going to you know, stick to. And this is what we have today. Okay. So um, they choose this model and um, it starts to grow. Insurance companies decide they're going to get involved because they don't want socialized medicine or nationalized medicine in the 1940s, especially even while we're in World War II, it's very clear, you know, coming out, there's going to be, um, the question is, are we going to go more towards the European countries with large welfare states and maybe a lot of nationalized businesses in the energy sectors and transportation, healthcare and such? Um, or are we going to, you know, to, to do something different? And so the idea for the insurance companies is that they're going to ally with the physicians to keep out nationalized or socialized medicine in order to protect the entire business community, right? Because the idea is if healthcare falls, then it's going to create a precedent, kind of like domino theory, and it's going to right. go through all the different yeah business sectors. And so they got to hold this back. So that's why the insurers are like, fine, we'll get involved with this crazy deal. <laughs> And we're just going to do a little bit. We'll just, you know, we'll just cover employee groups. We'll give them very narrow policies that just cover catastrophic, you know, costs, just cover 60 to 80% of your hospital costs, mostly for accidents. Some diseases might be only listed in the policy. Very, very meager policies, but we'll, we'll do a little something. And this way we can tell government officials, you don't need to get involved. You know, the private market has this covered, right? That's the idea of what they're going to do. And so that becomes the argument. And it's very explicit. Every insurance meeting, almost every AMA meeting, this is what they're explicitly saying to one another. We have to grab onto this, this, you know, healthcare insurance thing. The doctors are still, the AMA leaders are still mad about having to go towards health insurance, like Morris Fishbane, for example, the famous, you know, JAMA editor. Uh, but they're saying we have to accept it and we have to grow it in order to keep the government out of medicine. Okay. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, completely. It's disappointing, uh, but but it's actually understandable because, you know, we have benefit of hindsight to look back and say, well, yes. I mean, obviously what's going to happen. So essentially you had a system designed. It's like any negotiation, right? You have, but you have only one side negotiating and you have just the AMA who's dictating all the terms. So they're obviously going to be to the AMA's benefit or, you know, their members, the physicians for the most part, right? I mean, 
So you're saying either they developed an insurance company or model that says, okay, insurance companies, you have to insure for, for, you know, you can list what you want, but essentially you have to take whatever it is that you have no control over costs. You have whatever the physicians say it costs or the hospitals or whoever that you just have to pay that. I mean, anyone looking at that knows that what's, I mean, you absolutely know the next step. You know what's going to happen. Yeah. That costs are going to go through the roof and then you're going to try and make up for that by increasing premiums, I suppose, or, you know, either, because mm-hmm. uh, if you feel like you can't restrict the actual services, there's only one option. Is that's just to charge more money. Yeah. But you have, but unlike death, like for life insurance, you know, well, at some point someone's going to die and you can guess how long it's going to take them. Here you have no idea how much is going to happen between, you know, this year, next year, what's going to be covered, right? So costs are going to explode. It's going to be great for physicians for a while, as long as you can keep this running. But at some point, it's it's not, right? <laughs> so I'm sure we kind of know where, what happens next, right? Well, that's great. You really see the writing on the, on the wall. That's fantastic. Yes, exactly. Oh, and this is back in the day, too, where there weren't even fee schedules. So, yeah, you just get to make up what you're charging as well. <laughs> oh, that'd be great. I know. <laughs> I know. I've always like, it would have been a great time to practice medicine. So um, it's fine for the physicians still. But as you can see, they're going to get themselves in trouble because if you're trying to make a political argument and then all of a sudden costs are shooting up all over the place. Right. And then in the 1950s, we have an unnecessary surgery crisis because this is where then the fraudulent doctors. So it's one thing for everybody incentivized one way and little padding here and there because everything's creeping up and you're just keeping up with everybody else. But it's another thing when, you know, it just takes a few fraudulent people to really tarnish the entire, you know, the profession when it's like, sure. um, huh, 80% of the, you know, appendectomies you performed, you're removing healthy organs. Like we expect it in 10%, but right. 70, right. 80%, you know, is concerning. Um, so, so exactly what you're saying, the costs are out of control and it's, it's not mostly because of fraudulent doctors. I don't, you know, there aren't a ton of those um, just as much as you would expect, but the costs shoot up even on these meager, meager policies. So in the 1940s, I would say in the 1940s, they managed um, the AMA and and um, insurance companies managed to cover about a quarter of the population with these very narrow insurance policies. But this only serves to continue the calls and the political pressure for some kind of reform because people don't think that's good enough. Right. Yeah. Um, so that that brings us to the very big healthcare battle that probably most people in your audience are familiar with. And that's at the end of the 1940s, beginning of the 50s with Harry Truman's push for universal health insurance. Um, that's really important, again, because it, it's very clear if you look at the the um, the debate that happens nationally is. You have the physicians and insurers saying we don't need a government solution. It's, you know, it's communist, it's Soviet, but also we have a voluntary solution. We can take care of it uh, in the private market. But then government officials will say with that, you know, with that model, like people around Truman are saying they'll never manage to cover more than half the population with that, you know, and of course that makes sense. That's a rational forecast because they're looking at this insurance company model saying, how are you going to spread it to everybody when it's so expensive and causes um, costs to shoot up? So um, the Truman administration is making the argument to voters that, hey, if 
if we pass this legislation, then not only will everybody have health insurance, but it'll be so much more generous than these pathetic policies that those who are covered have. So you see, it's very explicit what's good. The messaging is Um, now, of course, Truman's plan is defeated. The AMA, along with not just insurance companies, but Chambers of Commerce, National Association of Manufacturers, all the business, you know, business interests. Um, They managed to defeat it. It's a massive campaign to defeat it. Um, But the important thing about it is that the argument that the Truman administration was making seems to have been accepted because even the um, Republicans and conservative Democrats who opposed Truman's bill, they still wanted health care reform because they still believe that there's a big problem with the model, the way it's developing, the fact that people, so few people have in health insurance and those who do are paying a lot for very little coverage. And then, of course, during this entire period, every single year, the cost of health insurance are shooting up so much. I mean, you, you see the insurers talking about it because they're not used to this happening in their, you know, life insurance lines or their property and casualty where it's like shooting up 35% every year. Yeah, right. And they're making weird jokes about only being able to skin a cat once. And, you know, like, so <laughs> they're they're really like, oh, no, what are we, you know, so this is a problem, too. So, um, so it's so interesting because even though Truman's bill is defeated, all under President Eisenhower, you would think, oh, well, he's a Republican, surely you know, they had peace. The physicians had peace and didn't have to worry about government intervention under Eisenhower. No, Eisenhower wanted to reform the system, too. He um, he himself had a proposal for reinsurance that actually looks a lot like the um, mortgage market insurance. Basically, it would have um, compensated insurance companies for losses um, if they covered people who were either chronically ill or elderly or if they expanded the generosity of their policies with made the benefits more liberal. And if they lost money, then the federal government would compensate them for those losses, which is like, right. you know, mortgage insurance with the bank. So so the you know, like I said at the beginning here, the the story is always well, their wage controls uh, after coming out of World War II. How much did that influence? Did that just change some legislation saying, "Well, we're not going to tax things. We're going to tax things a little differently when it comes to insurance benefits," and that's going to accelerate the use of in- health insurance for companies? Uh, or was it just other things that other forces that sort of uh, moved us towards a higher adoption of health insurance as a, a part of your employment? Yeah, I think that is way overblown. I've looked at the data. So have a couple other scholars, Jennifer Klein and Jacob um, Hacker, that the story of the wage uh, wage freezes in World War II causing health insurance to take off because employers wanted to provide health insurance as a fringe benefit in order to to, um, hire people when the markets, you know, when labor was so scarce. Um, The numbers don't indicate, I mean, they show an increase through World War II, but not any different than you would expect because there's a, just an increase, a steady increase happening, which I argue along with the other scholars I mentioned is really due to the fact that employers had a nice fat tax write-off for uh, supplying fringe benefits. They're more concerned about the unions and they're also concerned too. um, They're even thinking about making the political argument about, hey, we're covering our workers with health care, so we don't need nationalized or socialized, you know, health care as well. Um, so, yeah, there's an uptick through World War II, but nothing dramatic or 
what you wouldn't have expected. So it's just this, um, when the IRS is founded, you know, in the 19 teens, somebody just allows this tax loophole where the businesses get to write off um, whatever mm -hmm. they spend on fringe benefits. It just kind of sticks around for a few decades until policymakers start saying, wait a minute, we're foregoing millions of dollars in tax revenue. We need to do something about this. Um, but conservative Democrats and Republicans, they they want to help out those who are trying to, you know, push the private market against like a socialized solution. So uh, in the 1954 tax revenue bill, it's, you know, it's institutionalized there. So that that tax write up that employers still get. Um, and of course, this messes up the market in all kinds of different ways, because we mm -hmm. were just talking about how much prices were shooting up through the 40s and 50s because of this insurance company model um, and the way it causes costs to rise. Um but a lot of these problems are being hidden by the people who have the policies because their employers purchasing it for them. Right. Um, I find it very you, you probably talk to people today. I'm sure people in your audience have who think that they only pay one hundred or one hundred and fifty dollars a month for their health insurance. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Because right. nobody said, you know, you're missing thirty five thousand dollars in salary and you just let your employer choose your health insurance policy and company. Maybe you get to choose between two if, you know, you're at a Fortune right. 500 or something. Yeah, right. Or or actually, if you're at the best is if you're a federal worker, but we won't go there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting because, you know, I look at that too and I think to myself, you, most of the time when I hear the story about the about the wage controls con causing a change in the health insurance market, uh, I've always heard it from physicians and it, it actually wouldn't surprise me if that I don't know, fable, whatever is, is, per, is uh, perpetuated a little bit by the AMA for, and, you know, or for, for physician groups in order to sort of remove culpability for their, their play in that. Because I've never heard the story of the AMA really establishing the insurance market. I mean, you hear lots of stories as a physician of the AMA fighting tooth and nails against Medicare and the establishment of government insurance. Eventually they sort of link, relinquish and trying to make it as advantageous as they can for physicians, but recognizing, I guess, the writing's sort of on the wall as far as it's going to get. We're going to have the introduction of a, of a federal government-sponsored uh, insurance program. Well, one reason for that is the way the healthcare market and the AMA has been looked at, it's mostly been looked at as the AMA has been looked at, but not insurance companies. I'm one of the very few. Jennifer Klein is another um, scholar who's looked at insurance companies. And now people are starting to more and more. But you have to understand when I... When I said I want to look at insurance companies, that was kind of unusual. I mean, there's so much on the AMA, the AMA. Um, and one of the reasons people didn't write about insurance companies is how hard it is, obviously. Yeah, well, there are a lot of them. Right. There's one AMA. There's, you know, hundreds right. of insurance companies. Exactly. And so one of the big arguments I make is, um, hello, you can't understand healthcare politics unless you understand the market and the economic history. And so that's like a new argument I was making when... Um, when I, you know, my work came out in 2015. So it's, things are changing. Healthcare is now starting to be looked at as a business. And I know that must sound weird that it's like, wait, it wasn't looked at as a business before. So one of my home conferences is the Business History Conference. And when I first started going there as a graduate student working on this project as my dissertation, a lot of people are like, what are you doing here? What does healthcare <laughs> have to do with business? And you're like, ah, well, first of all, a fifth of our economy <laughs> right. goes to it. Second of all, yeah, it's not just insurance companies, but have you heard of the pharmaceutical industry? <laughs> like, maybe. So it's funny because now it's kind of more of a hot topic to look at that way is, you know, through the lens of whether it's history of capitalism or economic history or whatever. So 
Um, I think that's been a disservice that has been done. And now economic historians and econ departments are looking at it more and more, but it's not nearly as developed to say, you know, they're generations into looking at banking, you know, and very sophisticated right. there. I don't think I I don't think economists have been terribly sophisticated yet with healthcare. It's again, it's a new field for them, right? So anyway, this is a little something to your audience to understand that just I don't think it's been of service to look at because some people say, oh, it's offensive to talk about healthcare as if it's a business or that there's a market or economics to do with it. And how dare you call patients customers? But who are we kidding by just pretending and not saying what's happening? You right. know, yeah. it's I, I, yeah, I, I do understand on some level it referring to patients as customers is not entirely accurate in the sense that there's a it's a different dynamic mm-hmm. between them. But it's probably similar to a lawyer calling their their clients customers. Right. We mm-hmm. call them they come clients instead of patients because it is mm-hmm. a different relationship. But there is still a business aspect to it. Right? This money exchanged. I mean, there is. So you have to, you have to appreciate the fact that there is that there are you know, people close right. doors and open doors because for bankruptcy or whatever. And so that right, and we don't more. want physicians like right calling their patients customers or thinking of them that right. Obviously, but by when we look at the market and how it developed, the fact that we are like, well, we can't look at the economic variables because healthcare has nothing to do with that, or it shouldn't. That's the thing is this wishful thinking: healthcare should just be free and it should just be growing on the. Well, it isn't. It's a right. scarce commodity service, so we need right. to figure out how it's been financed and distributed. Is my point? Um, because healthcare. I disagree with the idea that it's just this super, super special thing that doesn't conform to any economic laws. I just, I just don't buy that. And I've, you know, I've argued this in all my, um, and I think it's only done a disservice to you all, because if you're not looking at things clearly, it's hard to see where you're hurting yourself long-term or not. Because the AMA, who can blame them for not wanting physicians to work in big corporations, you know, who yeah, can, right. you know, right. I get that part of it. But then they end up endorsing a solution that creates the very thing that they feared. Yeah, right. right. Well, and it probably is. It was inevitable, right? At some point that you're going to end up in some sort of entity that's going to be for for efficiency reasons, you're going to end up in like a large multi-specialty or single specialty group at some point, whether it's within a health system. It's just what, who's going to control it, right? It's, right. In some and ways that probably well is going to. Yeah, operated yeah. and financed by physicians is my only point. <laughs> Instead, yeah, of no, absolutely right. I yeah. think, and we talked a lot of times. Like I said, we talked about direct primary care in, in the show about those directive to consumer markets. Um, yeah, it's interesting because you know I think yeah, healthcare is really important. People say, oh, it's the most important thing. Well, I would disagree, and I think the most important thing is having food. And we've <laughs> never, we've never looked at farmers as like, well, you know, it's yes, there are people who wax poetically about farming and how important it is, and it. Absolutely is, and I my I have relatives who are farmers, and it's a really hard job, etc. But there's never a, a there's never a um, a view of them as like no as noble, I suppose, right? Is is I suppose it's just because they don't go to college and they can't write the narratives themselves that they're just you know the guys or women you're out there you know growing food, and it's been something done for thousands and thousands of years, so maybe it's just seen as more of a regular sort of um, profession than medicine, which is fairly recent and that came out of the academy. Know. Medicine. Well, but I mean, at least the modern medicine, the way physicians are viewed now, right? I mean, I think, yeah, I think, I think a physician looked at in the 1700s, like during, say, the Revolutionary War. I mean, it's as you mentioned at the onset of the show, totally different than what a physician's looked at now from a prestige standpoint, Mm -hmm. and their 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 knowledge of what they're doing 
was very rudimentary, right? You knew some anatomy and you apprentice. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just guessing why it's so different, but I, there's, there's always been that mentality. And I think it's because it just exploded so quickly and became so specialized in the, in the 20th century. That was maybe that's why these attitudes sort of progressed within the AMA. Right. Because you don't because of the academy. I don't know. Look, what you hear is people saying you have to socialize healthcare, but okay, then you have to socialize housing. You have to socialize food growth. You have, I mean, then that you're that's yeah that's my point is there isn't anything extra special as far as when analyzing um this from an economic perspective um so i guess in my narrative i've gotten you to the 1950s so i need to get you through yeah right i mean i guess and, and i would say at this point i mean you can kind of see everything that's going to happen right you can see you can see medicare get the national insurance programs and then you get the well, now we got it. We had that, and now we have the private markets messed up. So we're going to try capitation with HMOs, and mm-hmm. you know, I think you know all that sort of thing. So I guess you walk us through the rest. But I think at this this point, so the writing is on the wall. Now it's just the inevitability of getting to where we are today. So yeah. So but basically, what happens is yeah, the, the the insurers and doctors they partner up and they just run as fast as they can to expand this one particular inefficient insurance company model all, and they have to do it real quickly because all through the 50s Eisenhower and then tons of people in Congress are offering health care reform packet because there's this understanding we got to do something Republicans right. think it Democrats think it okay mm-hmm. so uh, the costs are rising this is before Medicare is passed in 1965 but they're running 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 to expand it and cover everybody they can the insurance companies are even losing money to do this they're they're really going out of their way to cover as many people as possible and expand benefits. Insurance is developing to become more and more like what we see and expect today as far as covering, you know, physicians' visits, not just hospital services, you know, um, preventative medicines, labs, diagnostics, et cetera. This is happening. They're running um, ahead of reform. But then at the end of the 1950s, the debates around Medicare start heating up with you have not covered enough of uh, the population over age 65. Um, believe it or not, insurance companies actually crazily try to cover people uh, over 65 with the insurance company model. They go so (laughs) far as getting special state enabling legislation to get around antitrust bills so they can pull together their resources, money, administrative capacity, and everything to try to cover people over 65, again, with very minimal policies that just covered maybe 10 to 20 days of hospitalization. And these people aren't employed too, which is important. This is the problem, right? If If your insurance is through employment at this point, now you're not getting the medical co- coverage if you're, and which is why you, there's this hole, right? Right. So they have to pay all this money for very little coverage. They actually end up though covering half of the people over 65, which to me is mind boggling. boggling. <laughs> and of course they're losing money like crazy, which means that walking into the Medicare debates, the AMA is still massively opposed, but a good half at least of the insurance industry, if not more, is either actively pushing for Medicare because now they can offload their sickest, you know, customers right. to the government yeah. to take care of, or is just kind of sitting it out. There are a few, you know, that are still fighting with the AMA, right? But the AMA is pulling out all guns against Medicare like it did with Truman. But this this one is actually just going to cause some problems because they're they're against a lot of their own membership, their own base, right? A lot of their membership is against them. Their membership was with them on Truman. Their membership is not with them on Medicare. It's very divided, right? Um, then the Medicare bill is so popular, the Kennedy-Johnson version of the bill, of course, it draws some Republican votes. But the point I would also like to make is, 
even the Republicans who didn't vote for that bill had the alternative that they wanted to vote for. And this is because of that explicit race that they had set up of the private market versus the government. And everybody was saying, look, you tried. You didn't do well enough with the we had a deal. You didn't come right. through on the elderly. Yeah, you because know, they would even you, I even have places where the congressperson would show up at an AMA meeting or an insurance company meeting and say, if you don't do X, we are going to do this. Right. That's mm -hmm. how explicit the whole the whole bargain was. So Medicare gets passed. And that is really where a lot of the AMA really kind of gets destroyed around here because a lot of the ill will and things that happen and with their base. Um, and um, so they really hurt themselves here. And even the Republicans feel like they get burned by them, that their association with them hurts them a lot in the election. So um, this is kind of some of the political decline. But the thing that is so important for your audience to understand about Medicare is once it comes around, remember, you had all these politicians doing everything they could to get rid of the insurance company model because everybody, you know, conservative, liberal, progressive, whatever, thinks it's crazy. But by the time we get to Medicare, they recognize it is so entrenched in the market. There's nothing we can do. We can't displace it with our own model right. for Medicare. And there, I even have them talking about this, you know, darn, now we're going to have to build Medicare on the insurance company model. It makes it nice politically, too, because then they can make the argument, hey, your your parents over 65 will access the same insurance companies and physicians you do, et cetera. They just couldn't at this point in the 60s, the federal government couldn't cover that, you know, that many people with these benefits. And so not only do they build Medicare on the insurance company model, they also then tap insurance companies to administer the program to be intermediaries between the um, the government and providers, hospitals and physicians. And that's kind of when it's just too late. Now the insurance company model is legitimized, kind of this Everybody forgets that everybody's trying to get rid of it before. And then thereafter, it's just cost containment. Lots of legislation, you know, the HMO yeah, legislation right. in the 70s. All, and then at the states, all the certificate of need laws and then all the laws trying to contain costs, but building up all these institutions around the insurance company model, which now today then causes direct primary care problems because there'll mm -hmm. be laws on the books in states like, oh, a physician can't own their own laboratory. Because under right. the yeah, insurance yeah. company model, you see your patient, send them across the street to your lab, have all the labs done, right? Run up the bill and send it to the insurer. But then today, this is a problem, obviously, for other models. But you see how all these institutions get built up and entrenched and further embed this very inefficient model that's caused costs to go up and has made medicine not as exciting to practice for you and even reduce the quality of medicine somewhat. Although one thing I am always pushing back on is this idea that the United States has um, poor med medicine. Like I don't, these ideas that people want to go to Cuba to get healthcare are insane to me. And I, I, just, I don't know who that is. That's people that's who obviously Michael Moore. live in Cuba. I don't know. Yeah, that's <laughs> so Michael Moore. That's his documentary. Yeah. I so tell my students that I'm always like so disappointed that so few of them are like, wait a second, who's really going to go to Cuba for healthcare? Like I'm always disappointed how few get that, but yeah, well, I, there is there are so many problems and and you can see how a lot of it stems from these decisions that happen and and people I go on shows and I'll say hey how do you fix healthcare like well you know you got five minutes <clears throat> yeah it's a joke right but you have to basically burn the whole thing to the ground I mean and that is not an easy endeavor that's not something you can just do tomorrow and you can't I mean essentially you can't do it but what's really interesting too I think about this discussion is you 
you you see the models now that are merging, and I think this is where medicine will go eventually. Is you're going to have more of the direct contracting, direct med, um, provider, uh, <clears throat> and you're going to see the healthcare these health plans. I think you're going to see them breaking apart. I think it's ultimately what's going to happen. It's not a sustainable model, and you see them sort of onesies, twosies as they lose the lucrative surgery centers and et cetera. Unless they get some sort of legislation to stop that, I think it's that's ultimately where things are going to go. It's why I'm actually optimistic about healthcare in general in the United States because I think that this is this is happening not only. F- for um, physicians, but also for the patients, I think you'd have better access. But uh, you can definitely see with the model when you have a, a model that is paying whatever people say, like you know, it's it's this whatever a bill I send, it's going to get paid. You can see how even if you had another model at that time and tried to ke- keep it, if there wasn't even laws against it, it's still going to die because it's not going to be as lucrative as the as the insurance model. So you can see why in the '40s and '50s, even if you try to have a direct to consumer model, it's really unless you're really unusual like the Mayo it's not and even they have you know they're accepting insurance too so you can you can see how it's sort of unintentionally squashed that market completely and so that the innovation that may have occurred in those markets never had a chance to occur because they were up against something that had you know unlimited pay (laughs) so obviously you're going to go work for the place that pays whatever you say I mean who wouldn't do that until it stops breaking down Right. And then the AMA is not going to come after you and get your license pulled and your hospital admitting privileges revoked and everything else. So these that's interesting, too, that they were that powerful. Yeah. I, I didn't realize the AMA was that powerful that they control the medical boards and they would just yeah. and they would actually you would lose your license if you yeah. just practice the wrong way. They even printed. I even have like a when I give a talk, I usually read a quote from a JAMA editorial in the 1930s. It's like, yeah, we'll come after you. And I laugh about it because. Because they're like, don't you dare enter into some contract with a commercial agency or, you know, the six or seven years, which you paid for of your life will be for nothing. But it's like, here's the most prestigious medical journal in the world at the time, taking a time out to threaten their own members. (laughs) And so, yeah, what your audience does need to understand is the AMA had incredible power that they don't have today because they own the state licensing boards pretty much. They acted like government regulators. So they could do whatever they wanted with the healthcare market. And that's how they molded it. But they don't have that power today. They don't own state licensing boards like that today. They might no, I mean, they, their members usually are on the boards, but yeah, they don't have, the, they wouldn't be able to get away with those sorts of exactly. anti-competitive practices uh, as easily. Now it's pretty much, you have to do some fraudulent activity or commit crimes essentially to get, to lose your license. Although that is changing now in California, they, they passed that, which I'll have to talk to someone about that with their misinformation rules. And so now that's a totally different sort of, um, yeah, uh, <clears throat> the government situation. Really, yeah, regular because I know there's a big opiate problem too with doctors not being able to just prescribe things they've prescribed for a long time. Well, right, that's a, that's another thing too, but that's not something the the medical boards go after. That's more like a DEA. But you're right. I mean, they're and this is of course you know if you're a libertarian, you're like, well, this is why licensing rules are are dangerous because you know if you're going to restrict trade with the license you are at risk for those license the whims of the license board if they change their rules or what they you know you're obviously at risk so but what well, you try to do then is you need to control the licensing board so you keep all your competitors out well it, absolutely right <laughs> no question but you know how do you control those people and yeah yeah all those things happen and um well anyway that's that's another discussion i suppose mm-hmm. uh, so Dr. Chrissy Chapin, thank you so much for coming on The Paradox. Uh, I'd like to encourage people to check out your book. And we're talking about, obviously, it goes much more in depth, Ensuring Health, America's Health, Public Creation of the Corporate Healthcare System, which, I mean, if you 
found this discussion interesting, absolutely pick up the book. I'll be a link to it on the website, uh, theparadox.com. I think it'll be 174. I should keep track of my episodes, but I'm so far in now I can barely remember. Uh, so thanks again for coming on the show. I really appreciate the discussion. Thanks so much for having me, Eric. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to The Paradox. If you like what The Doc is doing, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or Stitcher. And share the show with your friends. Become a supporting listener to get access to special bonuses at patreon.com forward slash the paradox. Show notes can be found at theparadox.com. Well, hello. I'm delighted to uh, introduce my new friend, Dr. Mary Ch- Chapin. Uh, we'll start again. <laughs> it's because <laughs> of Mary Carpenter Chapin. Or Mary yeah, I don't know. I, I have no idea why. <laughs> this is why I should probably read it. when. I... <laughs> Sorry, Christy. That's okay. It even says on the screen if I looked at that. <laughs>